Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. If you've examined your bulletin well, you'll notice that we're going to be considering chapter 25 all the way through chapter 27. However, this is a very long text and a very tedious text. It's all the instructions for the tabernacle. And so we're only going to be reading verses 1 through 22, as you see there on your bulletin, but we'll be considering the whole thing. We'll be looking at certain aspects of the tabernacle, and as you can see, um, we've printed a cool diagram um, of the tabernacle here, and you know, you can be sure that any sermon that has a diagram attached to it is going to be pretty awesome, right? (laughs) So, Uh, Before we read, let's get our handle on where we're at in the book of Exodus, or at least in this moment for Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. We need to remember that this section comes directly on the heels of the ratification of the Old Covenant, which for Israel was just the covenant. They didn't know at the time that it was old. (laughs) So Moses, at this point, immediately after ratifying the covenant with the people and sprinkling them with the blood of the covenant, he then is led by God up to the mountain to receive these words. And he enters the cloud, we see in the verse immediately preceding chapter 25 and verse 18. It says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is what he received from the Lord. And so let us read Follow along as I read this section, beginning in chapter 25. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. 
make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come before you this morning. We need to hear you, Lord. We need to hear you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And so please come, give us insight into this word. Lord, help us to grasp the great glorious, beautiful truth that is here for us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were to ask you today, what is so good about the gospel? How would you respond to that question? What's so good about the gospel? Is it that our sins are forgiven. That's probably how we would respond, right? Our sins are forgiven. Judgment has been averted. We will no longer stand under the righteous wrath of God. That's good news, right? And yet, that is not the best part of the good news of the gospel. The best part of the good news of the gospel is God himself that we will dwell with God and he with us forever. There's a book written about this that John Piper wrote called God is the Gospel, and that's what he means by it. God is the Gospel, meaning the forgiveness of sins is a means to an end, that glorious end of union and communion with our God. And this is exactly what the book of Exodus is teaching us. And this is why the book of Exodus doesn't end at chapter 15, when Israel crosses the Red Sea and the enemies of Israel are destroyed. It doesn't end there. We are brought to the holy mountain. And the book actually ends focusing attention upon the tabernacle. This whole, this whole section, this begins the final section, focusing our attention on the tabernacle, which is the climactic moment of the book of Exodus. What's happening here with the ark is that God now, for the first time since Genesis, is dwelling in the midst of a people. He's dwelling in the midst of his people, Israel. He says in verse 8, let Israel make me a sanctuary, meaning a holy place that I may dwell in their midst. Then he says in verse 22, there above the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you and I will command my people. The language there really reflects this idea of a king dwelling in the, in the midst of his people, commanding his people. This king, God is setting up his throne in this tent, the throne room of God. Now, this is why the whole description of the tabernacle begins not with the tent itself, 
but it begins with this box, this golden box called the ark, right? And this, this is overlaid with, with pure gold. It's a beautiful, a beautiful piece of furniture, really. And really what it is, is it's the footstool of God's holy throne. Right? In, in ancient pagan temples or even in, in the, um, the palaces of kings, kings would have footstools. And so in an ancient pagan temple, you would expect to find the image of the deity above something like this ark. But what you find in God's temple is nothing. Because the infinite, invisible, uncontainable God will manifest his glory above this ark. It's an amazing, climactic moment. And we see this in Exodus 40 at the very end of the book. Exodus 40, verse 34 says this, When the cloud... Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting after the the tabernacle was completed, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now that description is, is parallel to the description of the mountain itself and the cloud that rested upon the mountain. And what it's actually saying is the the dwelling place of God, the throne of God that was upon the mountain that the people could not draw near to and Moses himself could not come up to because of that glory cloud, that is now in this tent. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing picture and it's a climactic moment in the story of Exodus. But we stand here as a new covenant people, and we know that though this is a climactic moment in the story of the Exodus, it's not the climax of the whole story of the redemption of God's people. Just as the Exodus event out of Egypt laid down a pattern in scripture that would be fulfilled in a greater way, by Christ delivering his people out of the servitude to sin and death and the devil. So also, the tabernacle is a kind of map or a sketch of a greater reality that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that is ours in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.24 says, The holy places made with hands, were copies of the true things, meaning heavenly realities and gospel realities. That's why the instructions are so specific, so exhaustingly specific. It's hard to read through all this because God wants these, this temple, this tabernacle to be built exactly as he wants it built because it's meant to communicate something. It's meant to teach his people. He says, exactly as I show you, make it this way. Because it's an architectural display of heavenly realities and gospel realities. And so it has a lot to teach us this morning. And though we don't have time to look at every facet of the tabernacle, I want us to consider two things that the tabernacle reveals about God's presence. First, the tabernacle reveals God's gracious presence. And second, the tabernacle reveals God's holy presence. 
Let's consider God's gracious presence. How does the tabernacle reveal God's grace? Well, the very first thing we can notice about the tabernacle, if you were looking at it from the outside, is that this tabernacle looks like a tent. Surprising, right? Because it is a tent. And it looks like kind of an ordinary tent because it's covered in ordinary stuff. The first three layers of this tent are ordinary materials. They're protective materials, and they don't look very elaborate. They don't look very impressive. Yes, this would have been a bigger tent, but it actually would have looked like an Israelite's tent. The um, outer layer was some kind of protective layer, something similar to like a wetsuit, if you're a surfer, right? It's, it's something, we don't know exactly what it is, but it definitely protected the inner most layer from the elements. It was, you know, it's translated in the ESV there in verse 5 and verse uh, 14 of chapter 26 as goat skins. Other translations have badger skins or uh, old translation, I think, says sea cow, um, porpoise skins, dolphin skins. They're trying, this is a hard word to translate, but it's clear that this is some kind of protective pelt of some kind to protect the innermost layer of the tabernacle. And as having these three outer layers, what it showed was that God was identifying with his nomadic people by dwelling in this ordinary looking tent, right? The, the humble appearance of this tent showed what God was willing to do to condescend down to his people's level to dwell with them, that he would even become like them. And we know that this foreshadows the incarnation of our Lord. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. And just as God's sanctuary here was just like any other Israelite tent, yet it was not merely a tent. So our Lord Jesus was truly a man, but not merely a man. The beautiful foreshadowing of the grace of the incarnation. But moving beyond this, we see the grace in the outer court of the tabernacle. If you see, you can look there on your diagram and see the outer court. That's an area where all clean Israelites could come, not just the priests. And in this outer courtyard that is described in chapter 27 verses 9 through 18. This is where the altar was. This is where the altar was, the bronze altar, which is also described in chapter 27, the beginning portion of that chapter. And here, before all of the Israelites, was on display what Craig spoke last week of as the bloody grace of God, the grace of sacrifice. All Israelites could see and smell and behold the costly, bloody grace of God in sacrifice. And grace is bloody because grace does not do away with justice, but grace meets the demands of justice. Justice requires our life, and grace meets the demand of justice by providing a costly sacrifice 
And so we see the description of the bronze altar there, which is basically a large square barbecue with horns on each corner. The priests were master barbecuers. They were all about the meat. But what we see here is that every Israelite could behold the costly grace of sacrifice. Every Israelite could bring their sin offering to this place. But beyond that, an even a more elaborate display of grace, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would actually take blood from a single sacrificial lamb and take that blood into the holy place, where no Israelites, no Israelites other than the priests could go. And he would go even beyond that into the most holy place or the holy of holies beyond the veil. And he would come up to the very footstool of God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. And there at the mercy seat was where mercy came, flowed to the people from God himself. That's why the thing is called a mercy seat. Actually, it's a difficult word to translate because it kind of just means cover, but it's actually a technical term because it's meant to talk about what happens there. What happens on this cover is it's not just a lid. It's actually the place where God gives mercy to his people. It's the seat of mercy in that old sense of the word seat, not a chair, but the place where mercy happens. And it teaches us that mercy comes from the throne of God alone. It can't be, it can't be acquired anywhere else but from God himself. And if all went well there in the most holy place, the priest would return, make his way out, and he would pronounce blessing over the people. Say, your sins are forgiven. And say, God will continue to dwell among us. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. And it shows us that God's presence was full of grace for his sinful people. See, God kind of didn't have to provide this in one sense. God knew, though, that when he entered into a covenant with his sinful people, when they responded to him, all the words of this covenant, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. God knew who he was dealing with. He knew. He did not forget who he was entering into covenant with. And he knew that they would not and could not do what they said. And so he provided this grace for them. Right? In the heat of the moment, in the face of the fiery mountain, maybe they thought, yeah, we can, we can do this thing. Israel might have thought so. But God was under no such delusion. And so he provided this grace. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. When you came to the Lord, when the Lord brought you to himself, he knew who he was getting. He knew who he was entering into covenant with. That's why the Lord Jesus went to the cross. So that where sin abounds, grace would abound all the more. So we see God's grace presented on display for all Israel in the courtyard. 
We see it in the tent's common appearance. We see it in the altar. We see it in the mercy seat. But we also see it in the holy place, that first room in God's house that only the priest could go. And there in the holy place, we find the golden lampstand, which had a tree-like appearance, and the golden table. Those things are described in chapter 25, verses 23 through 40. In order for us, though, to understand the significance of these two pieces of furniture, we need to first recognize that God specifically oriented his temple to face a certain direction. And that direction actually helps us understand the significance of these two items in his tent. God said that his tabernacle, his tent, must always face the east. And I would point, but I have no idea which way east is. Should always face the east. Right? It's implied in these instructions. We see in chapter 26, verses 18 through 22, it says the sides of the tabernacle should face north and south, and the back should face the west. But it's explicit in Numbers chapter 3. And it's that way for a reason. Because Exodus follows Genesis. And it's to be read as one story. And what we see here is that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, exiled east, east of Eden, because of their sin. And so God purposefully orients his tent with the entrance facing where his exiled sinners, where his exiled image bearers must come from. He's welcoming them back into his paradise presence. And so what does the exiled sinner find when he returns to this eastward-facing tent, this holy place, into God's tent? What does he find? Well, he comes in and he sees on the walls artfully embroidered images of cherubim. Why? Because we're in Eden again. The cherubim were the ones who said, you cannot come back. And here they are. And now we enter this entrance to the tabernacle. And what do we see? We see the cherubim. And on one side, we see a tree, a tree. And on the other side, a table. And this tree would be lit up by seven lights, seven lamps. That number that signifies completion or perfection. And these lights, we read later in Leviticus chapter 24, these lights are not supposed to go out. Right? We read that at the end of our section as well. These lights are not supposed to go out. They're supposed to be lit up for forever, as long as the tent is up. And this signifies the reality that the tree of life, that eternal life that was lost in the garden, exists in God's house. It's there in God's presence and only there in his presence. Light and life are connected together in biblical imagery. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Speaking of Jesus. And so this glowing tree signified the eternal life that is in the presence of 
of God in his place. This is the way back to Eden. And the table likewise signifies now the fellowship that God is inviting his people to in that place. Because on that table were to be held 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the tribes of his people, the whole number of the people of God. He says, I'm saving a spot for you. All these things show the astounding graciousness of God's presence in the tabernacle. And this is why the psalmist speaks of God's dwelling place with such longing, because this is where life, capital L, is found. He says in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, and I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Because this is where life is. God's grace is on display. But in order to do the tabernacle full justice and the abiding presence of God full justice, we need to consider one other aspect that the tabernacle reveals to us of God's presence, and that is that God's presence is holy. God's presence is a holy presence, and his tent is called a holy place. These two things are not in conflict with one another, but they can create some dissonance in our brains to see them so closely together because holiness is a dangerous thing for sinners. So we see on one hand the welcome and the the beauty of life here in the tabernacle and also this reality of dangerous holiness. And we see holiness depicted, as we saw the gracious condescension depicted in the outer layer of the tent, we see God's holiness depicted in what's on the inside. What's on the inside, everything, every piece of furniture and the columns are made of pure gold. Pure gold. And the Walls are made of fine white linen. And there are and this linen is also you have some dye of colors and different things, royal colors. The royalty of God's palace is on display. The purity of his presence is on display. And this is really what holiness is. It's both the conflation of moral purity and infinite majesty and royalty. The weight and worth of God's being, his godness, his divinity. Holiness is not just moral purity. It's who he is in his godness that separates God from the creature. And this is on display for us in a beautiful way in Isaiah's vision in chapter 6. There, in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah has a vision of God's throne room in heaven, which is, as we, as we said, what the tabernacle was, the holy place was to be. And there in Isaiah's vision of the, of the holy place, he sees angelic creatures, fiery angelic creatures, calling to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these creatures have six wings, But they only use two of them to fly. Four of them they use to cover themselves. As we heard Ryan pray 
earlier. They cover their faces and they cover their feet. Why? Not because they're sinners, but because they're just creatures. And they shield themselves. And if these creatures, angelic, majestic creatures, are unworthy, they feel unworthy to be in the presence of God because he is God, how much more are we unworthy to stand before him? We are doubly unworthy to stand before this God because we are sinners. We are unclean. God's holy presence is dangerous for sinners. The Holy of Holies was the most dangerous place for a sinner to find himself. And that's where the high priest had to go. The high priest going into that place was like, was like a person going, a, a bomb squad expert approaching a bomb, right? He had to suit up. He had to clean himself up as if he were going into a place where a virus is supposed to be kept safe. He had to suit up. But not because there's a virus in there, but because he has the virus. He's unclean. And this holiness is reflected in that gold box where the cherubim cover themselves. And they face one another. And they're looking down. They're looking down. And the, the high priest, when he comes into that place, he is not allowed to look above the ark either. He must take the incense from the altar and create a cloud, just like the cloud that was on the mountain, to shield himself from the manifestation of the glory above the ark, lest he die. And no one could approach this box and touch it lest they die, because it was, as it were, where God rested his feet. Don't touch that. It's holy. You're not qualified to touch it. You're not worthy. This was something set apart for God. And through all the ritual purity and the restrictiveness of this ministry, God was teaching something about his presence, that it is holy and that we don't belong there. We don't. And yet he says, I want you to come in this way. It was actually the job of the priest to ward off anything unclean with the sword if necessary. You had to be qualified. You had to be clean. Anyone approaching must have had to ask themselves, am I qualified? Am I, do I belong there? Am I clean? Right? Even the king could not come in and handle holy things. We see this in 2 Chronicles 26 when King Uzziah tries to burn incense before the Lord. He thinks he's a pretty good guy. I'm the king. I can burn incense before the Lord. And the priest Azariah says, it is not for you. It is not for you, O king, to burn incense before the Lord. You're not qualified. And God struck him with leprosy before he could do it. The priests who were qualified had to also be clean. They had to wash their hands and their feet at the bronze basin outside before they could enter. And even if a person was ritually clean 
and qualified, they had to be sure that they did only what God commanded in holy places, handling holy things, lest they die. Because we're dealing with God. Sinners handling holy things, being granted access into God's presence. It shouldn't be. How can it be? And so these, these two realities we see depicted in the tabernacle, they come together, they're here existing side by side, and it creates tension in our brains, right? Because we, we, we know we, we need to be there. We need to be in this place. That's where life is. But we don't belong there. It's a dangerous place to be. I don't even know if I want to be there because I'm not qualified. Right? The average Israelite never saw the inside of God's holy tent. Never entered because they weren't qualified. And all of these things speak of and reveal to us the provisional nature of this tent. That this tent is not the last word when it comes to God's gracious, abiding presence. It's not the last word. It's temporary. And we know that this tent, as all tents are temporary, it will be replaced by a more permanent structure when Israel comes into their inheritance in the land. It will be replaced by a temple. But even this more permanent structure, the temple, cannot last. It's provisional. It cannot last because it's built upon a covenant that is breakable. Because people, sinful people, are part of this covenant. It depends in one sense upon Israel's obedience, and Israel will continue to break and break and break and break the covenant until finally God's glorious presence departs. And he says, he casts away his temple. He lets the ark go. And the glory departs. And even though the temple would be rebuilt graciously, yet the glory would not return as it was in Exodus, in the tabernacle. And even though it would be modified and made to look a little bit better in the days of Herod, the glory was not the same. The glory cloud did not return. Instead, the Son of God came and tabernacled among us. And he stood by that temple and he declared, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Because he's saying, I am the new sanctuary of the new covenant that is replacing this faulty old covenant. I am the bridge uniting heaven and earth. I am the way back to Eden, is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I'm fulfilling all that the tabernacle signified in myself. His cross is our altar, his body, the once for all sacrifice. And by his resurrection, he has become for us the tree of life, the light of our salvation that will never go out. He is the host who bids us come to the table of the Lord. And his continual intercession is like that cloud of sweet smelling incense that goes up before the Lord continually forever. That's what the Lord is for us. How much more glorious is the new covenant ministry, the new tabernacle that is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ?
how much more glorious. And more than all that, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, he has made you a partaker of his spirit. His spirit dwells in you. You have been united to his holy body, to this holy temple. You are extensions of the holy temple. His divine life makes you holy. He has qualified you. He has qualified you to enter. You're no longer a visitor like the high priest was in the holy place. You are a child of the king. And you have access and you belong in the most holy place. You belong there. He became one with us so that we could become one in him. So that we could receive the love of the triune God and be taken up into that holy embrace. That's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the beauty of the fulfillment in Christ that we possess. The holiness of God doesn't become less holy. We are made holy. We are made holy. We are made temples of the living God. So, brothers and sisters, do you feel unholy today? Did you walk into this building feeling unholy, unqualified? Have you soiled your garments with the filth of this world? Do you feel far off, like you don't belong? The holiness of Jesus makes you holy. The blood of Jesus brings you near, brings you near. The impurity and contagion of your sin cannot overcome the holiness of his Holy Spirit that indwells you. You are holy. He's claimed you as his own. You are royalty. You are pure white linen, pure gold in the Lord. That is your inheritance. That is who you are right now in the Lord. And you can be sure that one day that inner reality will permeate the entirety of your being one day. God will bring it to completion. He'll do more than you can ask or think. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The cherubim who once denied our way back to God will shield their eyes when they look at us. They will wonder in amazement how sinners like you and me could shine with the holiness of God. And they'll be astounded to see sinners like you and me at rest and at home in the holy presence of our holy God. And we will dwell in his house forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty and glory of your word, even in the shadowy revelation of the Old Testament tabernacle, we see your glory and how you fulfilled all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help our hearts to leap with joy and gratitude to believe these things and know that they are ours, our inheritance. Lord, thank you.
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.